I want to thank you all uh, uh, for praying for my son Darden, for me and Lisa, Sally, and Susan. I know everyone you know, is not aware of this. I think m- many are. Rob mentioned something a few, a few weeks back. It's been three weeks ago that... Uh, that Darden was in a motorcycle accident. And um, just outside of Sevierville... Uh, he struck the back of a car, was thrown into to oncoming traffic on this four-lane highway. Um, he's, he's okay. I want you to know that. I, I, it was one of those, I was at work last sun, three Sundays ago in the afternoon, and I got the call no parent ever wants to get. And I want you to know this. I say that because many of you have gotten that call. We're not alone in getting that call. <laughs> you know, no one escapes the planet. Uh, in the fallenness of this world uh, without those things. So we have not felt alone at all. Uh, Certainly it could have taken his life. Um, He uh, ended up with a a broken femur, fibia, tibia. He's got rods in his right leg now. He dislocated his left shoulder, broken ribs, broken wrist. No head or spine injuries, you all. I want you to know that. Um, He's in the trauma unit there for a while in Knoxville. We brought him home. He's been at Stallworth since. Um, he will have additional surgery coming up on his surgery uh, here toward uh, the first part of May is is the plan. Um, uh, lots of uh, lessons that we are unpacking as a family. You know, honestly, that Darn's going to unpack as a young man and uh, in his own journey. Um, not the least of which is how do you steward what God has brought about? You know, this is our reality and it's his as a young man. And uh, how do we steward this? And I say steward because I think that's what we do with it. It's, it's what we have. And um, I know this, that uh, we have so much to be thankful for, y'all. I, I, I was just showing Josh and Kelly a picture of the, the, the wreck scene, and some of you have seen it. Um, and uh, there, there's just a lot to be thankful for. How do we steward that? grace, you know, for us that many don't get to steward. The frailty of life is worth being reminded of, isn't it? It's just the way we're reminded is H-E-double-L. It's just awful because it's generally traumatic and difficult that you're reminded of the frailty of life. I will say this for Lee, and I speak for Lisa, we have been painfully sobered. We have not been overwhelmed. And I mean that. And it's in large part to, to faith and your prayers and care, you know, for, for, for our family. Josh and Kelly, by the way, pray for Darden constantly. They were unaware of it, but I know you pray for Darden. You know, it's just amazing to me that people that pray for my kids in such a way, such a gift. Um, I could say that I could, painfully sober, but not overwhelmed. I could say the very same thing about the text. I've been in this text for two weeks now, and I remain painfully sobered but not overwhelmed. You notice Jesus, when uh, Sharon read it, Jesus makes a comment here, a rebuke so severe, if we didn't have it in our Bibles, we would wonder, there's no way Jesus spoke like that about a church. Well, he did. But in the same breath, he utters a promise so sweet that I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a greater comfort or a greater hope in all of the Bible. In the very same letter. If you have your Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 3. We're in verses 14 to 22. It's the seventh letter to the seventh church in Revelation 1 through 3. 
I'm going to work through the letter like, like I, I have been working through them, and we do it differently, but you know, these letters all have a form. There's a, there's a form to the letters themselves. There's Christ's uh, character that's expressed in the beginning of each letter, and then he goes to his commendation. Here's what you're doing really well. Then he goes to his correction. You're not doing this well. Then he goes to his encouragement, and he finally ends with his promise. And so this last letter, I'm going to quickly move us through those categories and that form of the letter itself. Looking at your text, you'll notice it begins with his character to the angel, verse 14 of the church and Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. What's interesting about this description of Jesus is in all the other letters, he generally says, here's what I'm holding, here's what I have, here's what I'm gonna do. But in this letter, he does not draw from chapter 1, verses 12 to 8. He doesn't draw from that, that, that first front end of the letter. He speaks of his nature, of his essence and his character. And that's nowhere more clear than that one phrase, and I'm just going to grab the one, the beginning of the creation of God. What does that mean? It's literally the origin, the source of all creation. Now, I want to suggest that the Laodiceans had read the letter to the Colossians, their sister uh, cities and churches. And you read the letter to the Colossians and you'll note it says, have this read in Laodicea. So, so they've read it. And I think that Jesus is pointing back to what Paul recorded in Colossians 1 when he said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Key phrase I want you to hold on to, that we are created all things, including you and me, you see, created by him, through him, and for him. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. And I say that because when we get to the promise we're going to go back and we're going to grab this phrase, this theological truth that Jesus begins the entire letter with. Jesus is going to end with a cornerstone principle of faith, y'all, that's tied to this very truth. So there's the character of Christ. And then we go to the commendation. And commendation, here's what you're doing well. What does he commend the Laodiceans for? Exactly. Nothing. Nothing. There's no commendation. All there's commendation in all the letters. So this, see how this letter hits us? It's like boom, boom. Well, it's going to keep hitting in this way. Well, he goes straight to correction, and I'm going to do correction in two parts. Correction part one, verses uh, 15 and 16, following your Bibles. I know your deeds, and it's not, it's, what's coming is not good, okay? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, literal translation, vomit you out of my mouth. 35 plus years ago, uh, my best friend Scott Perry and I were with my dad and we were hunting and we, we used to hunt in south, southern Kentucky, just north of Clark. So we'd go into Kentucky and hunt and it was early fall. It's pretty warm still. It's Mennonite country if you've ever been in that area. And um, we were hunting and my dad, we were, we, it was, I think we'd finished. We were all hot, thirsty. And uh, so we were gonna stop and get a drink and, and we stopped at a little Mennonite 
grocery store, tiny. There's no Mapcos and all that, dailies and all that stuff going on. You know, it's just a tiny Mennonite community and small little grocery store we went in. And, and, and my dad, if he could have had his druthers, I know he'd like the cold beer. But you're not going to find a cold beer at the Mennonite grocery store. And so we go in, he gets the next best thing. My dad loved buttermilk and milk, you know, so he gets ice cold milk. Scott and I get a Coke or something. And uh, we're standing out by the truck. I, I, this, I, this is still in my mind's eye. My dad takes that thing, pops it open. He's halfway through it before he realized it's spoiled. Totally, cur- cur- you know, cur- just clumps. <laughs> it just flies out of his mouth. And then what flies out is this long string of expletives. My dad could cuss like a sailor, which we got tickled at, you know, Scott and I. The more he cussed, the more we laughed. Now... <laughs> I want you to think about this. The, the, the milk, what it was made for, it was no longer what it was made for. It had spoiled. It was, it was made for this. It was no longer made for that. And he, my dad spit it out. Can you imagine that Jesus would taste a church made for something and it would not be what it was made for and Jesus would vomit? A church. The letters are written to real churches and they're written to us. Before we think about Laodicea and go, of course he spit them out, we got to ask, what's in the room that would make Jesus puke? I'm telling you, Fellowship Franklin is not a pukeless church. There's no way, because no church is. There are things corporate and there are things in our lives. A sobering, sobering thought. Well, many years ago, I was taught that hot and cold Early in my faith, I was taught hot and cold referred to hot and cold Christians. What's a hot Christian? You know, the hot Christian would be someone who's fired up for Jesus, you know, just zealous for God, and that's a great thing. But then there are cold Christians. Who, what would a cold Christian be described as? Cold, you know, just doesn't care. I mean, a Christian in name only, but no genuine burning faith, etc. Now, the problem with that is it's not what it says. And, and that's what I was taught, you know, but, but I want us to go back to this and, and re-examine it in its context. And one of the things that, that, I, that, you know, I missed early on was that, you know, these letters, the interpretive key, one of the interpretive keys are found in the geography and culture of the place they're written to. So that we read about Pergamum and we read about these things, we go, oh, that's what was happening in Pergamum or Thyatira, all those cities. And so there is ample evidence here that Jesus had something entirely different in mind than hot and cold Christians. One of the reasons would be, in that day, y'all, they didn't think that way. You're not going to talk to a first century Christian and go, are you a hot Christian or a cold Christian? They're going, what's that? <laughs> I don't know what that is, you know? So they had no concept of that. Well, what was Jesus saying? Let's think about the historical, let's think about the geography and the cultural context. Laodicea, when the letter arrived, was one of the most prosperous cities in the region. And we can say this for sure. It was the wealthiest church city of the seven letters that go around. Okay, we know that about Laodicea. Um, it was a regional banking center. Okay, it was like Charlotte or Wall Street. We have letters of antiquity that tell us people would go to Laodicea and they would cash their checks. They would cash out the bond, the certificate. It would be done in Laodicea. Tons of financial liquidity there, a regional banking center. It was also a textile center. And we know for a fact that Laodicea had this special black wool. I've got a picture I'm going to show you of some sheep in Laodicea. And you notice the black ones, for some reason, they, they, would, they would have this 
deep, rich, soft, black wool that Laodicea was known for. Now, the city itself was founded on two trade routes so that this black wool would clothe the region, but can I say this? And the world. I mean, it's like they were known around the world, so to speak, for this beautiful black wool. And then uh, thirdly, Laodicea was a medical center, just like uh, Pergamum. There was a temple to Asclepios, the god of healing. But in Laodicea, y'all, their specialty was ophthalmology. Literally, they specialized in this salve that you would put on the eyes to help eye diseases. You know, that's why Jesus says what he says in a few moments. People would come from all over to get this Phrygian powder, Phrygia or Phrygia. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but it's the region, okay? This Phrygian powder that they were known for, okay? One thing that this city didn't have, though it had all of this going for it, was its own supply of water. Now, what do we know about the Middle East and that? No water, you don't, you know, it was on a trade route. It, it didn't pop up on a good supply of water. So all the water to Laodicea had to be piped in. You go, piped in? Yeah, y'all, they piped this stuff in back in the day. I've got a picture here of literally, this is Laodicea today, the ruins. And here's some piping, you see, that would come, you know, this is how they'd bring the water in. This was the Achilles heel of the city that they had to have their water piped in or aqueducts would bring this water in. Now, if you look to the northwest, about six miles from Laodicea, which I'm going to show you, you would see the city of Heropolis. Now, Heropolis was known for its hot springs. Anybody ever been to Hot Springs, Arkansas or some of these places? Yeah, you know, you go loaded with minerals. You go in there for bathing and, and, and healing, so to speak. People come all over to go to Heropolis, the hot boiling. We talk hot, we're talking boiling water springs. Now, when you look at Heropolis, and we're looking at it literally today, the white stuff, what do you suppose it is? Salt minerals, you know, the, 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 the hot springs would boil over and that's today, would go over the cliff. But over time, think about this, all the minerals would be deposited. And then you got that looking toward Heropolis, the hot springs of Heropolis. If you look to the east of Laodicea, about 10 miles would be the city of Colossae. So the letter to the Colossians. Now, when you look to the east and, the, and Colossae was at the base of these mountains, guess what's on top of those mountains? What is that? Guess what kind of water Colossae had? How cold do you think it was? Literally, it was frozen water. It was freezing snow melt coming off. And it's some of the finest water, you know, in antiquity in, in that day. You see that. You get, now you're kind of going, oh, I wonder what Jesus is talking about when he says hot and cold. Now to transport water to Laodicea, whether from Heropolis, whether from Colossae, or they brought water from the south, okay, to, to, uh, to Laodicea. By the time it got there, what was the temperature of the water? What was it? Say it. It was lukewarm. It was tepid is the, is the word. It's, it was lukewarm water. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't good for healing hot, and it wasn't good for refreshing cold. Not good or bad, it wasn't good for what it was made to be good for. It was now lukewarm. And that is what's unacceptable to Christ. Now, before looking at what makes a Christian lukewarm then, because we now know it's not good or bad, it's good, good. It's be what you were made to be, okay? Now we know that. What, what would make a Christian lukewarm? Before I look at it, it's in our text 
I want you to think about this. Whatever it is, y'all, it's got to be worse than losing your first love. Losing your first love earned a stern rebuke, but Jesus didn't throw up because you lost your first love. Or how about this? Go through all the letters. It's got to be worse than immorality, the fear of suffering, doctrinal defection, spiritual deadness, and tolerating false teaching. All those things sound terrible to me, and they are, and they earned a stern rebuke, but Jesus didn't vomit. But we get here, and he pukes. What would make a Christian lukewarm? How does he know they're lukewarm? Look at verses Uh, Verse 17, this is still in the correction. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are, this is to the church, Christians, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. It seems that Affluence, I'll unpack this, has done what affluence can do, okay, to the heart that's not connected and growing in a relationship with Christ. It has, what, blinded the Laodiceans. They, th- they see one thing, but they're not seeing the truth, right? They see that we've got everything we need, and the truth is you're blind and you have Nothing. I'm going to give you two phrases that summarize this, maybe a bit easier to hang on to. Uh, they, they were self-sufficient, which resulted in their self-deception. Self-sufficiency, which resulted in their self-deception. And this is why most commentators see this letter, you all, as the one most fitted, so to speak, to let's just say the North American church or the Western church. That this kind of, man, you know, the glove fits, wear it. This is what we do. You know, it's not our imagination. And I'm, I'm just, I just thought about this for me. I think many of you could relate. That when one of our global partners, you know, partners are around the world, stand on this stage and share with us, whether it's like Celeste Musakura or a James Box, South Sudan, or an Angel Barrientos from Comus. And, you know, many of you have seen them, whether here at Brentwood, and they share. You know what I do? I sit there and I look up at them and I think to myself, Man, what do they have that I don't know? I mean, what is it about their faith that is so deep and so grounded and so rich that they, I, I know the context they come from because I've been to two of those places. And, and I go, how is it they have such joy? How do they have such courage and, 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 and faith? How is that? And you think about it and you go, okay, what do they have? What do they have that I don't? Let me tell you what they have, Okay insufficiency, need, hardship, never enough, difficulties that never end. That's what they have. Let me tell you what, what, let me tell you what we have, okay, that they don't. Affluence, plenty, sufficiency. I'm just telling you, relative ease at being, it's just, and what does it produce in us? See, that's, I, I get convicted when I think about that. Because I go, I want their faith. But you know what I don't want? I don't want their circumstances. But it's those circumstances that produce that faith. Affluence has never been kind to the church. And if we think we can live in 
Williamson County, Murray County, I don't care, Davidson County. We think we can live in Middle Tennessee and not be, and our faith not be affected by our affluence, then we are self-deceived. I mean, we're already self-deceived if we think that. Meredith Kinder shot me a text last week after I taught in Brentwood and he he was reading something about this passage and someone said it this way, comforts and amenities are a, quote, soft prison, end quote. And they are. I want you to notice how pointed Jesus' words are. You think you're financially wealthy? You're poor. Hey, you think your eye salve is the bomb, heals everything? You're blind. And you think that black wool that you export and everybody brags about is clothing you? You're naked. You see that? Just boom, boom, boom. I want to ask you this, though, because I want to be very clear. Is it wrong to be wealthy? I want you to answer that. It is not. Is it wrong to have nice clothing? Is it wrong to have access to great medical care? No. See, don't go there, but go here. What nauseates Jesus is when those things become our sufficiency. When those things are the things that we're, I'm secure in, trusting in, you see. It's nauseating to Christ. Well, how do we live in such a way that, honestly, we don't, because you know, we can, I'm, let's just face it, we can be rather self-sufficient. How do we live in such a way that our self-sufficiency doesn't self-deceive us and the affluence engage and marinate our souls? How do we, how do we keep from that? Well, the answer is not going to surprise us, I don't think. It's his exhortation in verses 18 and 19 and then we'll get it in the promise in verse 20 look at verse 18 i advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and i salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see and don't don't never take 19 out it's in the context those whom i love i reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent jesus's words are not the words of an angry God. I'm so tired of you. You know, it's not. These are the words of a broken-hearted Savior. Those whom I love. I'm speaking so hard to you because I love you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Gold refined by fire. It's probably this picture of faith, if I can say it this way. You know, First Peter speaks of a faith that's refined by fire. I want to be careful here because Jesus says these words, buy from me. It, you know, there, we know this. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy. So it's not, he's not speaking in those terms. The idea is come to me. I'm the only place you can come and get what you need. You got to come to me. When we come to Christ in faith, What do we find? We're clothed in his righteousness. We come to Christ in faith. Our eyes are opened and we see there are spiritual realities more real than any physical reality on the planet. And when we come to Christ in faith, we understand that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He says, I want you to be rich. See, that's the richness of blessings in Christ. Y'all, there's no money. You don't have enough money to buy any of this from Christ. Of course not. But you do have what I call the currency of dependency. See, we don't bring all my self-sufficiency, all my wealth, I'm rich. What do we bring to Jesus? 
Here's what I'm going to bring to Jesus. My need. My bankruptcy. My sinfulness. My self-sufficiency. See, you see what I'm saying? We bring that, you see, and what do we get? His goodness, forgiveness, and blessing. The currency of dependency in faith secures that for us. Well, the promise, verses 20 and 21. You talk about a verse that's misapplied. Here's one for sure, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. When I became a Christian, you know, put my faith in Christ, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It was actually, you know, it was four spiritual laws. And actually this verse is used there in an evangelistic way. It's used, when I say evangelistic, meaning it's, it's describing, you'll say, well, you know, God's knocking at the door of your heart. You don't know Christ. You haven't trusted Christ. So God's knocking at your door. Will you let Christ into your heart? Now, I came to faith that way. And I would assume many of us in the room probably did. It still took, okay? You, you, you know, if you've trusted Christ, you've trusted Christ. But that's not what this verse is about, okay, at all. Because I think we would all agree, in its context, is he speaking to Christians or non-Christians? You tell me. Yeah, he's speaking to the church at Laodicea. Okay, so we know he's speaking to Christians in the context of this verse. And so it's not, the, it's not an evangelistic, not an evangelistic verse. You talk about an odd picture. Get this picture in your mind, you know, because this is what they would have pictured. That they're in a house church, they're in a house and they have done just what we just did. They have just sung about Jesus. They've just praised Jesus. They've just exalted Jesus. They've just sung. They've, they, they, they have just spent some time submitted to Jesus' word. They're, they're learning about Jesus. He's Lord. He's got all this. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And someone goes and says, who's at the door? Who's there? And, and the voice comes back. It's Jesus. Can I come in? Now, I'd be thinking, I think what you'd be thinking if it happened here, if it happened here right now, I would go, I thought you were in. <laughs> I thought you'd been here the whole time, Jesus. And it's a spooky thought, okay, that there's a way, I don't know, there's a way in which the church can gather and do everything like this and Jesus not be there. That's sobering. Wait, I thought we're two or more gathered. There's, yeah, yeah, but, but let me tell you something. There, there's a way in which he cannot be there. Well, to deal with self-deception, self-sufficiency, to avoid the, the, the seduction of affluence, what Jesus is saying here, I'm gonna tell you something. It, it, it goes way beyond our possessions and what you have goes way beyond because the problem's way deeper oh the problem's deep in here not out here in our hands and what we have in our bank accounts and stuff i want you to notice he doesn't say which you might have thought he would say sell it all give everything away to the poor move out of your house and go down and live somewhere it's not so affluent you see he doesn't say any of that does he he doesn't address our stuff at all Oh, but he addresses the heart. He does not tell us to have a garage sale. Instead, he makes himself available for dinner. 
That's it. Wait, we've got this massive heart problem and you're telling me Jesus is making himself available for dinner. Yeah, that's exactly what he does, exactly what he says. The word for dine, it's the, it's the word for the evening meal. We know this is not, you know, a snack. We know it's not coffee. You know, it's not a short thing. It's the long extended evening meal. This, think of it this way. This is the meal of communion and sharing and life together and engagement and communication and vulnerability. This is the, this is the dinner, uh, the meal of, of, I'll call it shared life. So what's the picture? Well, the picture is communing with Jesus. This is relationship with Christ, dinner, meal with Jesus. But why a dinner? Well, get this in your head. It's, it's, it's literally communing with Jesus. This is what he's saying. I want to be with you, share with you. I want, to, I want us to be together. I want us to talk. I want us to engage. Why that? Well, here's, here's why. Because the problem is our wants. See, the problem's not what I have. Let that go, because if he just, if you just let go of everything, let me tell you what'll happen. In a month, you're gonna grab it again and grab something more. You know, so it's not the problem. The problem's here. The problem's in my wants. And he's addressing this. Lisa and I were sitting with, with Darden probably two weeks ago, and we were sitting at Stallworth, the rehab facility, and, and we started talking about his grandmother's funeral, Mimi, Lisa's mom, and it's not been that long ago that we just buried her. And um, I, I this tell you where my mind was even at the time, but there may be 15 people around the graveside and I led the graveside and, and, and did the funeral. And uh, it was family. And I said, does anybody want to share anything about Mimi? And, you know, just a funny story or, or something that you recall that you, you want to you tell all of us about. And Darden said, Dad, you remember what I shared? And I did not remember at all. And then he told the story and I said, I do not remember that at all. He goes, oh man, he goes, I, I, I said this at the graveside. So anyways, he said, I told the story about the time that Mimi let me eat a whole box of Little Debbie cosmic brownies. <laughs> and then he pulled it up and showed me a, a Google image of it so I'd remember. Y'all have had them. A whole box. And he said, and I got so sick. He goes, I cried all night. It was miserable. When he was that age, when he was like eight, nine, and 10, Darden, if he couldn't go to sleep and didn't get to sleep quickly, he would panic like I'm going to be awake on, he'd cry like a baby all night. You know, he said, I cried all night. And then laying at Stallworth, he said this. He goes, I guess that's what happens when you get what you want. And I went, yeah, it does. And when you're 10, your wants are way out of whack. You know, you got, you get, your wants are wrong, inappropriate. Then I went, well, when you're 55, your wants get way out of whack. I want mm, what's not good for me, inappropriate, out of bounds. And so Jesus says, let's have dinner. What's he saying? Let's be together. Your relationship with me, this is the thing that matters most. And when we have dinner with Jesus. And you keep, I keep saying that because I want you to get in your mind's eye. When, when your relationship with Jesus is, is intimate and real and growing and engaging, you begin to find that Jesus himself is your greatest need. 
And he is your deepest satisfaction. And Jesus himself is your true identity. It's, it's who you are in Christ. Christ in you. It's your truest identity. And when we're living out of our truest identity, see where I'm going with it's me in Christ, Christ in me, then guess what? I'm hot. What do you mean you're hot? I am made who I was made to be and I'm, it, my life through Christ is healing to others. And guess what? I'm cold. What do you mean? My life in Christ is refreshingly cold, like a cold drink to a weary soul. I am made and I'm being what I was made to be and do in Christ. Not I'm hot and I shouldn't be cold. No, I'm hot and, I'm hot and cold, like Jesus said. Don't address the gravitational pull of affluence by uh, buying less or having less or giving it all away. Have dinner with Jesus. Commune with Jesus. Eat with Jesus. Sit with Jesus. Talk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Love Jesus. Share with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Live with Jesus. Communion with Christ is our greatest need. Communion with Christ is what you and I need more than fill in the blank. Wherever you are in life right now, it's the first thing, it's the most thing that you need. Communion with Jesus. It's what I need every moment of every day of my life. And when my relationship with Christ moves from being a part of my life to being my purpose in life, is to know Christ. You see, then you're having dinner with Jesus as a way of life. And the wants of your heart, oh gosh, they begin to align with the wants of Christ for me and for you. That's basic Christianity, isn't it? It's not like you're, I know you're probably looking at me going, anything else? No! You know? <laughs> I mean, this is, it's all of it right there, relationship with Jesus. Warren Wiersbe ends this verse 21. He makes this comment, and I don't have time to unpack this, but I, I love it, and I think it says it all. He says, notice the dining room becomes the throne room. Do you see that we're gonna reign with Jesus? I don't even understand what all that means. Well, let me tell you something. The dining room becomes the throne room. You talk about what we're made for. You talk about a promise that holds such hope, such comfort. You see, that's why I said that at the beginning. Even this harsh rebuke, such a beautiful promise we're given. Did you notice that Jesus has brought us full circle? He, he, he just brought us all full circle because it started with, I taste you and you make me puke. And then he ends with, let's just share a meal together. It's beautiful. And I don't want you to miss that verse 20, he says, behold, I stand at the door and what? Say it. He who hears my, did you catch that? Because you, you think he might go, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears me knocking, doesn't. He says, he who hears my voice. What does that mean? Well, I don't know exactly, but it's this sense of I'm knocking and either he's knocking in a way that he's speaking with his voice or he's knocking, do I have your attention? And what matters is not so much the knock as it is my 
voice. Do you hear my voice? And so I'm going to say this, and you know, I've said this, and every time I tell, I said, you know, Bill, Michael, Rob, myself, you know we're not going to push you to legalism. I mean, you got to do this, you got to do this. But I, I must say this. You cannot have dinner with Jesus without your Bible. I don't know how you have dinner with Jesus without his word, you see. Because you want to hear his voice, y'all. And I'm not talking about the mystical voice. I'm talking about he, spoke, he has spoken. I mean, we're reading his literal words. So we can't have dinner without the Bible. You know, I, I want to take it. I want to go read your Bible. But I'm not going to do that. Although I just did, you know. So I got it in even when I said I wasn't. But, it, you know, I'm not hammering you on that. It's, how about this? Do what you want. You walk with Christ, he'll make you want. He'll, he'll develop that want. You want to read your Bible. Because this is his voice. I want to end this way, or so what? What do we do? What, so what does that mean to me? How do I apply that? Let me, let me actually apply it this way. Fold your Bibles up, stand up, and I'm going to read over you. That's what I want to do to end. And I want you to just to listen. You know, because it's not the knock. It's the voice that we want to hear. And this passage came to my mind when I was studying. And I thought, I just want to read this over you. So let the words of Jesus come over you right now in these moments. And uh, I, would, I, would, I would say, Spirit, what are, what are you saying to me? Even as Jesus speaks. Jesus said these words to you and to me. Luke 12. For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Or an inch, you know, literally, or an inch to your height. If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And God bless.